Welcome to The Real 7 Show. As always, this podcast will be completely raw, unfiltered, and uncensored. Today I sit down and talk with Chris Howe. Chris Howe is a firefighter, the owner of Bond Street Tattoo, and the host of the Authentic Adversity podcast. In this podcast, we talk about his journey to sobriety and all of his trials and tribulations growing up. So if this is something that you'd like to listen to, then buckle up, because here we go. Chris Howe. Uh, I live in St. Catharines, Ontario. Um, you know, I was born and raised here. Um, right now, I'm currently, I work as a, a captain with the Niagara Falls Fire Department. Um, I do, uh, I host my own podcast, the Authentic Adversity Podcast, and I've just recently opened a men's addiction uh, recovery facility uh, here in St. Catharines. Um, and, you know, my story is, um, it's 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 a long one but um you know i'm 45 years old now so uh a lot of childhood trauma a lot of um you know a, a parent who was really uh struggled deeply with mental health ended up in different facilities jails um mental hospitals that sort of thing um i i came from a family that was really um kind of a don't ask don't tell type of family so um what i mean by that is you know it was always whatever happens behind closed doors stays behind closed doors um i didn't uh, i was i was always urged not to talk about personal stuff not to talk about family business not to talk about uh you know anything that happened um basically make it look good on the outside for everybody who might be looking and um you know i think a lot of us from our generation uh grew up that way right like it was uh, our parents yeah. our parents were younger um, and you know, my parents were early twenties. They didn't know what they were doing and they, they didn't know what they didn't know as well. Right. So, um, yep. it was, uh, you know, I, 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 there was a lot of, there was a lot of, uh, emotional, verbal, uh, sometimes physical abuse in the household. Um, my mom was the one who struggled, uh, with her mental health. My father was a business guy, so he was not home a lot. He was always on business trips and that sort of thing. And, kind of the type of guy um you know we have a great relationship today but back then he was um he was he was there but he wasn't there you know he was always you could even feel you could feel that when he was in the room with me his mind was somewhere else he wasn't present the way a father should be mm -hmm. um he he would go away for you know business trips and this sort of thing and and it was always like oh look what i brought you home almost like let me buy your affection rather than let yeah. me show you, let me take you to the park, let's play, let's do interactive things together. So um, I was a, I was a child that, um, you know, I was very to myself, I had a hard time making friends and keeping friends. I was very anxious as a child. Uh, There's a lot of pressure put on me um, to perform academically, and I never could, you know, I was always falling short that way. So I was always, there was, there was, always these these pressures that my parents would put on me and then I also had that you know the shame of what was going on with my mom and you know she would be acting erratically I didn't know really which version of my mom I was going to get from minute to minute so I could be mm -hmm. in a room with her she could be 
a loving, caring, uh, you know, se seemingly loving and caring mother. And I turned my head and turned back and, you know, I would be met with a different person, uh, met by a different person who just like would be like vicious towards me. And um, so I was always walking on eggshells. And I, I, I believe that, you know, as a child, I was always searching for an escape. Mm. And you know what I mean? Um, when I went to my friends' houses, I always noticed that there was there was a cohesiveness and a warmth in their houses that I didn't find out. Like my house was cold. Yeah. My house was dangerous. Um, it wasn't a safe place for me to be. And um, I didn't understand it until I started to kind of go out and see this in other people and feel this in other other people's households. And I I didn't, you know, I, I thought it was fake. I thought everybody lived the way I lived and in fear all the time. Um, but it wasn't the case. And, um, you know, when I was age, uh, seven, I, um, I had a, a female caregiver that, um, you know, unfortunately, you know, I, I was, I was a victim of, of, you know, sexual molestation, uh, from this older, uh, female caregiver. And, um, again, I was told, you know, this is our secret. That's, you know, you don't tell anybody about this. Don't talk about it. Um, this is between you and I, nobody else to, has to know. And, you know, this, we were just playing doctor, this sort of thing. Right. Um, really, really for me, I, I, I think that was the moment where I was sort of thrust into adulthood, you know, at seven years old. And I look at my stepson right now, he's nine. And I think at seven, like you were so such a helpless child. You know, how yeah. does anybody do that? Right. It's, uh, mm. it really, it, it really changed my perception of the world. Um, I didn't know, I didn't, I knew something was wrong. I knew it wasn't right, but I didn't know, I didn't know what was wrong about it. I just knew that it felt wrong um, and that I couldn't talk about it. So again, here I am, this, you know, this shy, quiet kid that was constantly on edge, constantly anxious, constantly looking for an escape. And now I've got this other sort of like massive trauma in my life that, I couldn't share with anybody. So I was really, really, you know, programmed from a young age to keep everything bottled up inside. And, uh, and that's just what I did. You know, I was, I was afraid to tell anybody because a, I didn't want to get people in trouble. Uh, and B, you know, I was told that that was wrong. Um, that that's not what a man does. A man doesn't share how he feels. A man doesn't, you know, and especially when it comes to something sexual, <laughs> Um, that it was, it was for fear of being perceived weak, uh, that I, that I kept it to myself and, um, I carried it and it was really heavy. It was really heavy and I carried it for a long time. Um, and, and I, honestly, I, I've just only within the last five years started speaking openly about that particular event. Um, and you know, you're a father, you know how that, yeah. I don't know. I don't know how anybody, I don't know how anybody has it in them to do that. It's just so, so inhumane to, to, yeah. to do that to a child. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, nevertheless, uh, you know, I, I kept, I kept, I kept my, um, kept my mouth <laughs> shut and I kept kind of forging on. And um, I want to say my first real escape that I found was music. You know, I, mm. I, I was introduced to, um, and I had older cousins that would look after me and they were, they were friends with all the punks and the skinheads in the area. And they would like introduce me to like punk rock and hardcore. And I really, really 
dove deep into that. Um, and for me, you know, probably from the age of eight until, well, who knows when, like, if you saw me, there was a pair of headphones on my ears and I wasn't looking you in the eye. I was off in my own little world where the music was, the music was all I had. And it was my escape. I was, I lived in a, in a, in a fantasy world where mm. I didn't, you know, when my headphones were on, I didn't have to exist in my current reality. And for, for a scared, vulnerable child, that was, you know, that was my first escape. Um, and that was almost like, I want to say my first addiction that I had. Mm. So let's just backtrack just a little bit now. Sure. When it comes to, you know, being abused at such a young age, especially after having a relationship with, you know, your mother that is seemingly not amazing. Obviously, it feels very volatile. Yeah. And then to have, you know, the sexual abuse happen with another woman in your life. What does that do to the psyche of a young man going forward in your life, especially when you start dating and you start mm -hmm. getting, you know, in, interested in women? Were you left with this sort of very confused feeling as to kind of like either what to expect from a woman or were you kind of did you have like a resentment towards them? Like, what was that part of your life like? Yeah, it was very difficult. Um, it was it wasn't a resentment, but a fear. I was mm. I, I feared women um, and, uh, and, a, and a very deep distrust for them. So uh, it, when I started dating, yeah, you know, like I thought the worst I thought for sure whoever I was with at that time was not who they presented themselves as, that they were most mm. likely going behind my back, lying, cheating, um, deceiving me in some way. And I felt that uh, inevitably I was going to be I was going to be hurt by this person. So I was very um, uh, I would say. I would dip my toe in the waters, but I wouldn't I wouldn't dive in head first mm. do you know what i mean with, yeah, with yeah. females I, I i you know until i met and you know i had a lot of i had a lot of female friends when i was say in junior high and um i started to meet some good people that were that were modeling proper behavior i also did have some um some aunts and and other family members that were um loving and caring and compassionate people that had a lot of empathy mm. for me that did, you know, they, when I got a little bit older, I was, you know, my mom was in, in jail and, and my father was doing business in the States and, and that sort of thing. And, you know, I ended up uh, living with an aunt who was a very, she's, she's no longer with us, but she was a very, very compassionate, empathetic and loving person. And she was the first woman to show me um, that I was worthy uh, mm. and that I could trust that I could trust a woman. Um, but mm. that wasn't until I was 15 years old. Um, and, and at that time, you know, I had gotten into other things and, and dove a little deeper into, uh, you know, well, drugs and alcohol became a, a big part of my life by that point. But uh, yeah, it, it, it was a really difficult thing to, to give all of, all of myself to a, yeah. a woman or to a female. And, um, and that problem and that, uh, that issue stayed with me um in well into my 30s you know i i always had that underlying Man. yeah it was like an underlying distrust and um almost it was like inevitably 
something will go wrong with this person. This person will, will, will do me wrong in some way, shape or form. Yeah. Yeah. Deep seated for sure. Take a long time before you start to realize that, you know, at the end of the day, Bob Marley said it best. Right. And that's that everybody's going to, you know, hurt you at some point. It's just realizing who is, you know, worth hurting for. That's right. right. And that's just, it's human nature. People fuck up. You know, a lot of times, you know, even all of us are human. We all say things, whether it be to the kids, to the wife, to your boss, your friends, that just in the heat of the moment, like nobody's perfect, man. And, uh, you know, and you can just apologize for it later. But when there's a cut that's so deep at, at that young of an age, when sexuality isn't even something that you're right. considering at mm-hmm. that age, like, I couldn't even imagine, you know, and I think the more, the more disturbing part of that is if you were to explain that to anybody who is in the, I guess, modern spectrum of human, like these fucking non-playing characters that are everywhere, mm-hmm. um, you start to realize that a lot of them would be like, hey, bro, it's like, who cares? It was an older woman like, and almost yeah. glorify the fact that. You know, well, it's it's like it had that been the roles reversed for like older man, younger woman, all of a sudden, right? You know, the double standard carries in. It's like, well, that's fucking wrong. And it's like, well, dude, it's just as wrong to corrupt the mind of a young man with something so young. Like that is that's fucking crazy, dude. Like it's I couldn't 100%. imagine what that would be like. And the fact that it would be glorified in any sense is 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 odd to me. And, yeah. you know, I, I think that the conversations like this where you can have two men to sit down and discuss things that are completely outside of the norm are the discussions that are going to change the way the world is as we know it. So I agree. you go through these things, you find punk music. Now I want to ask you, you know that punk as a genre is, mm-hmm. is typically anti-system. And, and did you find that a lot of that was, appealing to you because it was more anti-self uh i would say i i looking at it today i could say yes back then i didn't have the awareness for sure sure sure. um what i what i did really like about it um was the chaos of it right the the the, the chaos of it um Mm. it allowed me to escape the chaos here inside me Mm. and 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 I was comfortable in chaos. So a chaotic music or, or, or something that was aggressive and, and that sort of thing, um, that, that felt, that felt good to me. And it, um, what I liked about it, it, it wasn't my chaos. It was chaos that I, I could be a part of right. that, that wasn't my life. Um, and, and I think, yeah, the, the, the anti-self or, or, or anti-establishment and that, that sort of thing, I liked it. You know, I was um, I was I was kind of a rebellious uh, kind of kid, and um, I I developed an attitude of of sort of like fuck the rest of the world, um, yeah. and yeah. and and um, eventually, I mean, it, in turn, that that also fuck fuck my own life too, you know, and sure. and I think that when I found, you know, the first the first time I found alcohol was when I really realized that, you know, for me, um, I, I was hurting so much inside and I had been hurt by so many people in my childhood mm-hmm. that all I wanted was the control. I didn't, I didn't mind that I was hurting myself, but 
but I had the control over that. Right, I didn't have the control right. over who was hurting me as a child. Um, and so now, you know, if I was fast forward to age 13, I take my first, you know, I'm out at a party. I take my first sip of alcohol with that, with that sip of alcohol, all my anxieties, all my stresses, all my shame, my guilt, my fears, everything washed away. You know, I drank, you know, and, and I, that, that first night that I, I had my first drink as a 13 year old, um, I drank till complete blackout. Um, and, you know, I was at a party where I didn't know too many people. I was brought by some older kids. Um, there was alcohol there. I was like the youngest kid at the party and I just kept drinking, kept drinking, kept drinking. I haven't known how to drink like a quote unquote normal person ever in my life. The first time I drank, I drank to oblivion, to complete blackout. Um, and I loved, I loved that to me, replaced the escape of music. And that was to me, I didn't have to think about, I didn't have to think about the world around me. It was just about the mm -hmm. present moment and what was going on and who I was with. And, uh, you know, I woke up very confused I, like I said, I, I'm a blackout yeah. drinker, so I, I don't remember a good chunk of the night. And I woke up very confused, very worried about what happened, where I was, what people were going to say about me. And what I found was that I had a bunch of new people around me that were telling me stories about how funny I was. I had attention from some older uh. girls that were there. I had like people, I had a sense of belonging and I had friends around me. Um, or who I thought had become my friends over this night, one night of blackout drinking. And I was invited to another party. And for me, it was, it checked all the boxes. You know, I was socially accepted. Sure. Um, I had that escape that I mentioned. I didn't have to think about, you know, I didn't have to be fearful of anything. It took away every, every negative emotion I had. And, you know, I felt a sense of community and it gave me the, you know, I was searching for my place in the world and i found it in alcohol and and i found it as not only in alcohol but i found it uh in blackout drinking and and very shortly after uh drug abuse so mm. you know as a 13 year old kid uh going into high school you know you're now being invited to different parties from you know older kids as i said now you're getting attention from females um your friends that are in your, your, like, you know, your peers are jealous of you that you're getting invited to these, you know, older kids parties. And, you know, I felt like I was on top of the world. I thought that, you know, I was untouchable. I had bigger kids, older kids, tougher kids that were watching, like watching over me, taking me under their wing. Um, and all they wanted me to do was have a good time, drink myself to oblivion and make an ass of myself. And, and I was quite all right with it. So anything they put in front of me, I would ingest it in whichever way it was the quickest. And, you know, so that to me, um, again, it was, it was where I found identity, mm. which I didn't have before. And, mm. uh, and so, you know, school went by the wayside. I was, you know, I was much more, I was much more interested in what was happening, you know, Friday, Saturday night than I was with sure, yeah, what I was supposed to be doing Monday to Friday. Um, I became obsessed with finding more substances, you know, whatever I could get my hands on, uh, however I could get money to get more. Um, mm. So whether it was, you know, 
alcohol, drugs, you know, by the time I was uh, 16, I was I was, you know, using cocaine pretty heavily, drinking uh, daily, like daily drinking at 16 years old. Um, somehow, you know, whichever way I could find it, right, stealing it, stealing for it, um, you know, trading things for it, um, wherever I could get, you know, I was basically just chasing, chasing a nonstop escape. And, uh, you know, I started to notice that at that age, um, some of my friends that used to think I was a lot of fun, used to think I was a great time and I was invited to all the, their parties, they started to kind of take the distance. And mm. I stopped being I stopped being the fun guy at the party. I ended up being the guy that people would roll their eyes at. Like, fuck, he's here again. Like, what do we got to deal with tonight? Um, and I had a cousin that I was very close with and uh him and I which is brutal together. I mean, we were we we were in this like competition for who could, you know, who could damage themselves the worst, I guess. And um it was we found ourselves in some really 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 troubling uh situations that um <laughs> that we sh- n- nobody should be in. And it was all a result of, you know, searching for more drugs and alcohol and and getting more fucked up like i was getting i was having three day long benders like where i wouldn't sleep like i'd be awake for three days at 16 years old um and it, it got really it got ugly and i was trying to keep it together uh for 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 i was basically trying to chase what i had before that sense of belonging in that community around me and i was seeing it all fall apart so at 17, uh, I dropped out of school. Um, I went out. I had an opportunity to go out to New Zealand. Um, and I thought I could go and, uh, I guess, sort of reinvent myself. Um, I, I didn't have to be Chris, the alcoholic or the, you know, the the drug addict or the problem. I could just be Chris. Mm. And, um, you know, and and that, that was what I set out to do. But, of course, you know, kind of like the saying goes, like, wherever you go, you take yourself with you. And mm. that to me, that meant. I brought all my problems with me. And so, you know, I'm on the other side of the the planet and I'm meeting people that were just like me. I'm getting into things and, you know, that I was into back home and worse. And so my trip out there, it didn't last as long. I was supposed to stay out there for a year and it got cut very short because I was, it, there was too much trouble. Um, I was learning things from people there that, uh, you know, we're putting me in really compromising situations. So uh, I ended up coming home sort of like a... This podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, Yorko. All of us know how important our health is and Yorko has your health as its top priority. From white pine tincture to give you that daily dose of high quality vitamin C and boost the immune system to all natural healing salves and soaps for day-to-day use. Everything is all natural, handcrafted, and 100% all Canadian with zero harmful ingredients. We all know almost all store-bought products and over-the-counter medications are causing a world of problems for us and our families. So keep you and your family safe with all-natural herbal remedies from Yorko. Visit www.realyorko.com and enter the discount code 7SHOW for 10% off your purchase. That's www.realyorko.com and enter the discount code 7SHOW for 10% off of your purchase. Now back to the pod. 
a dog with his tail between its legs, you know, like I tried, I tried to reinvent myself. I tried to outrun my problem, but right, yeah. you can't outrun it. You can't outrun yourself. I wasn't willing to look at what the root of the problem was. Right. Um, mm. So I, you know, I, I continued on, uh, I ended up going, you know, going back to school. Um, it, you know, it took me a long time to get through high school, but I eventually did. Um, you know, by the time I was 18 or 19, I became an IV drug user. Um, and you know, I was, I was, I wouldn't, I was not snorting drugs anymore. I was injecting and, you know, I was toying with, um, I was toying with heroin a little bit. Um, it was just what, again, whatever I could get my hands on. Um, I started playing in, in some bands and that sort of thing. And I was, you know, I, I, we toured around a little bit and, um, I didn't particularly love playing in the band, but what I loved was we got, we got paid in free booze. We got free drugs wherever we went. And so I was never without, you know, I always had access and, um, mm -hmm. yeah, it was, uh, it, it was, it was a, it was a scary time, but I always, I always evaded real trouble. You know, like mm. I got jumped a couple of times. I got beat up. I got, you know, I got get into fights or get, you know, I get into shit, but I wasn't yet getting thrown in jail or getting in any serious, serious trouble where it would be like a real prompt to say, mm. okay, dude, like enough's enough. You got to change. Um, and you know, I, I think at that time I knew I was an alcoholic. I knew I was a drug addict. In fact, I was actually, um, I almost wore that as a badge of honor at that time because I didn't know how else to deal with it. You know, I, I, I knew it was a problem and I, I knew that people didn't take kindly to who I was under the influence, but mm. I always seemed to find another group of people that would accept me. I found like another, I, and you know, anybody who's listening who may have known me back then, you know, I, I say like I was going from like, I'd take a step down to like a lower group, a lower group, a lo lower group until I ended up, um, you know, I, I'd find myself just hanging out in crack houses, hanging out in dope houses, like shooting, sharing needles with people like that. Uh. You know, it was. And at that time, man, I, I I didn't give a fuck about life or death. I and with every time I shot dope, I I I was perfectly at peace with this might be the last time. This might be the last moment of my life. And there was times that I prayed. I prayed not to wake up. I prayed to, you know, this, let this one be the one where I overdose and die. You know, it, it was, it got really dark. And, you know, I, I spoke a little bit about the first, you know, that, that first, the heyday of my, of my drinking and how it washed away all those fears and emotions that were negative. And, um, you know, that had completely, you know, I was, I was imploding on myself, all those things that was very temporary, that wash away of all the, uh, the fears and, and, and the, um, the shame and that sort of thing. It had all come back tenfold for me. I mm. now became, you know, I was, I was now harboring all my traumas from childhood. And then everything that I had done leading up to these, these moments. And, and I was hurting people everywhere I went. You know, like not only and, and I didn't see it as that I, I was a selfish, self-centered drug addict that thought I was only hurting myself. 
but I didn't realize the wake of destruction that I was causing around me. Yeah. Um, I didn't realize how many people were affected my, by my drug use, by my alcohol uh, abuse, you know, and, and I was abusing people like, you know, not, not in the way that, <clears throat> not the, in the way that that sounds, but like I was taking people for granted. So I feel that sure. I was abusing their friendships. I was abusing their trust in me. Um, I was, was very, as I said, very selfish and self-centered. So it was all about what can I get from you? You know, what do you have that I can take from you to get me what I want? And mm. um, really no way to live. And and again, you know, so all these things that they were just piling up on me, um, I realized that, uh, you know, I, I, I got I to gotta find a job and try to straighten out or whatever. And I ended up getting a job in a factory. Um, I had done a, a bunch of moving around. Like I was in Toronto for a little bit, tried to go to school, got kicked out, ended up, you know, working in a tattoo shop for a little bit. And then, you know, basically couch surfing because I couldn't afford to live there anymore and um, came back. And, and again, these are all things. And I, and I say this because as drug addicts and, and alcoholics now in recovery, a lot of us, a lot of the people that I know, um, we try this method. We try this like outrunning, like I'll move to a different city because it's just my surroundings. That's the problem. It's my friend mm. groups. That's the problem. It's right. the, it's the lack of opportunities. That's the problem. Like, I, and we never, ever, ever look at me. I'm the problem. <clears throat> you know, it's everybody else. It's all my circumstances. It's I'm a product of my environment, but no, sure, you know, sure. It's, it's my, it's my problem and my responsibility to deal with it. But at that time, you know, I was too deep. Um, mm. so I got a job in a factory and, uh, I was working a night shift. It was a machine shop where we made parts for Ford and, um, you know, I, I liked my, I was working steady nights. So for me as a, as a drug addict, it really worked out because I was no stranger to staying up all night and mm. ma management wouldn't be around. I was able to go set up my machines, go out to the parking lot. And it was back then, you know, it was really common to sit out in the parking lot, smoke weed, have drinks, do whatever you're going to do. Sure. Then come back yeah. three hours later, set your machine up again <clears> and then go. It was uh, for a drug addict and an alcoholic. It was a dream job and they paid me well. Mm. So now I had, you know, more access to funds. Um, and I, so this is, something that I can vividly remember. And I was about 22 years old then. And um, I would see this man. He was this big, heavy set, bearded guy, tattoos up and down his arms. Um, he was, I believe, he was an ex-Satan's Satan's uh, Choice member. And uh, he would always just stare at me. And he was like a, he was an intimidating guy. Like he was a, he was a presence in a room. And he'd stare at me. He worked the day shift. So we'd see each other on our, on our, on our way. Like I, I was leaving from my mm -hmm. shift. He was coming in for his. And he'd give me this look that I can only describe as the look of a, a disappointed father, you know? Mm. And he would just sit with his arms crossed and like, look at me. And, and, and I couldn't figure it out. Cause you know, a lot of times I'd mm. be blacked out at work and I, I, I was thinking to myself, fuck, what did I say to this guy? I must've pissed him off. Like, I'm about to get an ass kicking one of these days and um and I just couldn't figure it out but I I didn't I didn't want to push it. I didn't want to press the issue with him. Um one day, you know, I was in the bathroom and uh the door comes open and I, I turn around, you know, whatever, zip up, turn around and uh he's standing there and I'm like, "Oh fuck, here we go." 
this is, you know, no cameras in here. No, this is the place I'm getting my ass beaten by this man for some dumb shit that I've said or done. Mm-hmm. And uh, he says to me in the gentlest, kindest, most compassionate voice I've ever heard coming out of a man that looks like that. He says, you know, kid, I've been watching you and I just want you to know that when you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, I want you to give me a call and hand me a piece mm. of paper with his name and his number on it. Wow. And I didn't have a fucking clue what he meant. I was like dumbfounded. Like I was just happy I didn't get my ass kicked. And, uh, you know, he um, it would have been like me to throw that number away and say, fuck this guy, whatever. And uh, I, I just kept it for some reason. And I put it in my wallet. And about three months later, I, I found myself in a in a bar drinking by myself. Uh, I was running up a massive bar tab that I couldn't pay. Um, I was no drug dealers were answering my calls at this point because I was in too deep for all of them on fronts. And, uh, you know, I, a lot of people just didn't want to deal with me. And, uh, you know, when a drug dealer doesn't want to pick up your call anymore, like yeah. it's, a, it's a problem. Like, yeah. and, and so um, I was searching in my wallet for, and, and I, at that point I was alone. There was nobody left to drink with. There was nobody left to use with. I felt mm. like this is, you know, I was that, that guy that was like dirty and disheveled sitting at the end of the bar, you know, ordering more, more and more trying to figure out how the fuck am I going to pay? Or am I going to dash on this guy? And, um, I'm going through my wallet looking for something. Maybe I had a stolen credit card or something I could try to pay with. And uh, or at least leave as collateral, whatever. And I come across this guy's number in there and I go, fuck, that guy told me when I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I'm pretty much there right now. You know, mm-hmm. when I'm when I'm all alone at the bar, I can't pay for my tab and no drug dealers want to pick up my call. Uh, I think I'm at that point. Um, so, uh, you know, back then it was it was pay phones. So I and I and I remember this. I stole a quarter out of his fucking tip jar, went mm-hmm. and made a phone call and I called this man. His name was Terry. And I said, Terry, it's Chris from work. Um, you said when I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired, you could help me. And I, I'm pretty sick and tired. And uh, he says, where are you? I told him, he said, I'll be there in 10 minutes. Don't move. So mm-hmm. um, he showed up and I don't know, man, I always say this to people. I think at that point, all I was looking for was somebody to pay my bar tab. And mm. He said uh, he showed up and he said, you look like you're in a a pretty rough situation. Um, I'll make you a deal. And he said, I'll pay your bar tab, but it doesn't come like that doesn't come unconditional. You got to come across to the Tim Hortons across the street. I want to buy you a coffee and a sandwich and I want to talk to you. Give me 40 minutes, 40 minutes and I'll pay your couple hundred dollar bar tab right now. And I said, done. You know, I heard I'll pay your bar tab and I was I'm in. And so right, right. he brings me across the street. We sit and have a coffee and a sandwich. And he tells me all about his story, um, how he was a, a hopeless alcoholic and a drug addict. And um, he he said a lot of things that sounded very familiar to me. And um, he talked about his life, uh, you know, being so chaotic and so out of control and unmanageable. And I was like, man, you're telling my story. And he said, well, the difference is, you know, 20 years ago, I made a decision to change my life and um, you can do that too. And I said, there's no way, like, I'm, this is me. This is who I am. As I said, like I was wrapped up in this identity of, you know, I, this is, this is why I'm put on this earth to drink and abuse drugs. Um, 
that that that's all I had. <clears throat> it was truly all I had. Um, and he said, well, listen, there's a meeting. Um, there's an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting tomorrow night and I want to bring you. Would you do you agree to it? And I thought to myself, what the fuck? Alcoholics Anonymous. And I, as I said, I knew I was an alcoholic, but man, I was like, I didn't know anything about it. I thought that's where those losers sit in church basements in a circle mm. and, you know, talk about how shitty their lives are, their lives are. And I'm like, I'm not one of them. I'm not one of those losers still tricking myself, you know? Right. And, um, I said, sure. You know what? You pay my bar tab. I'm in, I'll come. And, uh, he brought me to my first meeting at 22 years old. Um, I will say that I was the youngest guy in that meeting. You know, I, I, but when I walked into that room, um, not knowing what to expect, I saw a bunch of people laughing, smiling, joking, shaking my hand, introducing themselves to me, asking me, you know, how are you? How are you doing? Are you new? They were interested in me. And that to me was like, that was new. I mean, nobody yeah. cared enough about me at that time to ask how my day was. Nobody cared enough to ask me, you know, am I new? How can I help? All these things. And you know, what it really reminded me of is that warm feeling and that 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 cohesiveness that I felt when I'd walk into my my friends' parents' houses as a child. Mm. And I couldn't put my finger on what is this? And, you know, it was fucking it was love. It was just real love. Yeah. And and these people, strangers to me in this AA meeting, had it for me. You know, they had they had unconditional love for me and and they didn't know me. They just knew that I was in the right place. They kept telling me, you're in the right place, man. You know, things will get better. I promise you just, you know, follow, follow these steps, follow this, this path and things will get better, you know? And I listened mm -hmm. to people talk about their stories and, um, and, and, you know, I wish I could say that my life changed from that point on, but, um, I was 22 years old. I was naive. I was stubborn. Um, I thought I knew better. And instead of being, instead of listening to their stories and saying, you know, I can relate to you. I listened to their stories and I said, that's not me. I haven't had a, I haven't lost my job because of alcohol mm. or drugs. I haven't got thrown in jail because of drugs. I haven't got in, I haven't, you know, I don't have DUIs. I don't have, I haven't had a, a woman leave me. Well, I guess I ha had women leave me for my, for my, uh, my issues, but you know, I haven't, I haven't lost a marriage. I haven't been divorced because of that. I haven't eaten out of a garbage can. I haven't lived on the street. And every time I would say that stuff, my uh, this guy, Terry, that I told you about for my work would say, that just hasn't happened to you yet. Yet. You keep doing what you're doing and make sure that after every statement you make, add the word yet, because you mm. will end up there. And I and and here's me, 22 years old. Oh, watch me. Right. <laughs> So I, you know, I, that was my first introduction to uh, the rooms of recovery, I guess. And that was the first introduction to, I mean, at that point, I'm going to say, you know, quite honestly, I didn't know that people lived happy without alcohol and drugs. I didn't know that people, I thought that everybody was faking it. I thought that I was, you know, I, I was so wrapped up in my world that I thought everybody had this same issue, but we weren't talking about it because of mm -hmm. what I was told as a child, you don't talk about this stuff. You keep your emotions in. Mm -hmm. um, so I, 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 you know, I might've stayed in those meetings for a few weeks and then I decided that I've graduated AA and I wanted to throw myself a graduation party. And, you know, I went out 
and I went out thinking I'm going to make up for lost time. And sure enough, like I just went like harder and harder and harder. I got lower and lower and lower. And, you know, I, I always tell people this, that, you know, talk about rock bottoms. Um, you know, I, I talked about, you know, putting needles in my arm, thinking and praying that this will be the last breath I take. You know, uh, I didn't think there was a lower bottom than that, but there was like every rock bottom has a trap door and mm. you can always go lower. And I found myself in all those places. You know, I found myself, you know, begging for money. I found myself getting thrown in jail. I found myself in like tumultuous relationships where I was like, I was, I was completely, completely taking advantage of everybody around me and super like just so selfish where people were pushing me away to the point where, you know, it, it, for, for any normal person, it would be restraining order time. You know, I, it wasn't, I was, I wasn't, I, I was so far away from who I truly am. I was so lost. Um, and I will say this in the, in the meantime, I had I had gone to school, um, you know, I, I I went to school to be a paramedic um, because I I heard that it was a two year course and that um, it pays pretty well. And at the time I had a, I had a, a diploma from high school and I knew that I didn't want to stay in this factory because I was I was destroying myself. And I, I just mm. I, I knew I wanted more. I didn't know why, but I just knew I wanted more. Um, I met a girl in that, in that program. And, you know, I, I, I completely, um, again, selfishly, like, you know, she, I, she helped me cheat my way through this program. And, um, I graduated, started working as a paramedic, um, with a, a drug and alcohol, like a severe drug and alcohol addiction. Now here I am in an ambulance who, a kid who cheated his way through school has a drug and alcohol addiction put in charge of saving people's lives. Um, it was very, like, I mean, it was so scary. Um, and I, I feared I, every time I put my uniform on, I thought today might be the day where I'm responsible for somebody not making it, you know, because oh, I wasn't, I, I didn't take the time. I didn't take the care. I didn't educate, you know, I, I took education for granted and, and I, you know, I manipulated this girl to, to help me get my way through the school. And, I don't know who I thought I was kidding because, you know, it ended up that I was only, you know, I was suffering every day for, for this fear. Like I just mm -hmm. thought for sure, somebody is going to die yeah. on my watch. Um, so I knew I couldn't do that. And, um, I ended up moving, uh, applying to school down in Texas, uh, for this fire Academy moved down there for a while. It's like a boot camp for firefighters. Um, mm. and down there I found that, um, my drinking was pretty acceptable um, to to a, a lot of people um, because they weren't exposed to it for as long as other people. And, you know, I was still finding, right. you know, I, I could go anywhere. I could go anywhere and and source out drugs anywhere I could find it. It, it, it. When you when you use enough drugs, you can walk into any room and say, he's got it. She's got it. He's on it. Mm. She's not like it. You sniff it out like you. You can find it anywhere. So. I was moving all over, like I'd go all over the, all over the place and I could just find it. It was, um, I don't know. It's a, it's a drug addict thing, but like, um, so down there, I, I, I thought, you know, I could be a firefighter. That is, 
maybe that will get me some respect in the community and from my family and from people mm. who said, fuck that guy, he's going to be dead by the time he's 30. And, 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 you know, I didn't disagree with them either. Like people used to say that all the time. And I really, I, I, I think I'll probably, I, I'd be lucky to make it to 30. Um, <laughs> but I wanted to leave a mark, I guess I wanted to do something. I don't know if this is, um, today, maybe I can say that back then I, I still had something in me that wanted to be of service. I wasn't yet at the place that I really knew how to, but, um, you know, eventually I, you know, I became a firefighter, uh, in 2003. And, um, that for me was the schedule was amazing. We worked seven days on and seven days off. So I got to, you know, I got to mm. put my uniform on and go to work for seven days and then, right. you know, have, all the time in the world to to abuse myself and then you know try to try to you know piece it back together to put my uniform back on a week later um and in the fire department it's a really strange thing like it's a very it's a very uh male dominated masculine type of job and yep. uh, it's very old school i mean at least where i work it's uh the in 2003 there was still a lot of like really old school mentality type guys that were like, you know, um, they were really hard, you know, and they were very, they were very cold, very closed off. And, you know, one of the guys that, uh, one of the more senior guys said to, uh, me and some of the guys that got hired with me on my, on our very first day, he came up to us and said, um, you know, if I can give you guys one piece of advice to carry through the rest of your career is to never show your weakness around here because we prey on our week and you're paid well to do a job. You're going to see shit that most people don't have to see, suck it up, walk it off and be a man. We don't talk about that shit here. And that hit home for me, right? That hit hard because like, again, it's just reminiscent of childhood. It's this thing that's the, this idea that's been driven into my mind. And yeah. I think a lot of us, especially men, it's been driven into our minds that you just can't talk about what's going on inside. And, uh, you know, and for somebody who was a senior guy and a well-respected guy in that department, I thought, fuck, here I go again. And, um, you know, I, I had started to use the rooms of recovery. I, I realized that I could, when I started getting trouble with the cops or I started getting trouble with, you know, uh, a girl or, somebody somebody was after me for money i realized that i could check into detox i could go to the you know go to, start going to aa meetings and say no it's it's all good i'm taking care of this problem i started to use the rooms of recovery as like a little um refuge from the rest of my problems mm. and i thought i was you know i was doing it to appease other people or you know what i mean like if i had gotten in a car accident um you know and the, I, I i used to just run you know, I get in a car accident, I'd be fucked up and I, I would run and, uh, you know, the cops would catch up to me a few days later or whatever. And so to make it look good here, I'm going to, I'm going to take care of my issues. I want to take care of my problems and, um, a lot of weird shit like that. And I, and I, I, I didn't realize it at the time, but like when I would dip into those meetings to make other, make it look good for other people, I was slowly gathering these like seeds of recovery that needed to be watered mm. but hadn't yet 
And, um, you know, so as I kind of progressed through work as a firefighter, I, um, I started to go through some things and see some things that, again, uh, it doesn't matter what kind of training you have, what kind of background you have, what kind of a man you think you are, when you see it, something breaks inside you. Something, yeah. you know what I mean? It's not uh, emergency service workers, uh, frontline workers, military. We all know that feeling um, because you you have no choice other than to act on it and to be part of that scene. And it takes a little piece of you every time you see something traumatic. Um, you know, and, and again, re, you know, I'm always reminded of this in my, like I've kept this really close to my heart. What that guy said to me, you don't talk about it. you be a man, you walk it off, suck it up. You're paid, you're paid to see this stuff. And, um, so instead of talking about it, I would drink about it. I would use about it. I would find a girl and I, and just whatever could take my mind off of it, you know? And, you know, I, I, I used to, you know, I'd meet, I'd meet a girl and, and, you know, I, I would, I was a, I, I wasn't a good partner. I wasn't a good, you know, I, I wasn't a good person. I was using that girl as an escape from like, just get my, get my mind off yeah. of shit that I'd seen. And, you know, I wasn't fair to that person. And, you know, again, also still using drugs still for the first eight years of my career, I was he a heavy drug, IV drug user still. And, um, I was taking advantage of my sick time. I was, you know, I was getting, I was getting, I was getting thrown in jail. I was getting caught up with by cops. They were calling my, my department, letting them know, you know, your guy is not who you think you are or sorry, who you think he is. And, um, again, you know, it just was never enough to, was never enough to, for me to say, I really got to change. Mm. Um, the last the last three years of my drinking and using kind of career, uh, I hated the sight of myself so much that I took down all the mirrors in my house. Anything that you could see a reflection of me, I, I was so ashamed of who I'd become. Um, I had three suicide attempts. Um, those those suicide attempts were, you know, I they were real, you know, like I, and, and when I, when I woke up and, and was unsuccessful from three different suicide attempts, I thought to myself, what kind of a fuck up am I? I can't even do that. Right. I can't even go out like that. Right. And I, I, I viewed myself as a parasite, as a failure, as an unworthy, like bottom feeder. And, you know, and back then, you know, I was, I was partly right, but I didn't know that I had potential in me. And um, mm. so after the third suicide attempt, um, you know, I I had my coworkers had had enough of me. My family had had enough of me. Nobody. My friends were not my really my friends. You know, they were just people around me that were drinking and using. I was like, you know, I can remember being in, in a dope house watching somebody overdose and stepping over them when we heard the cops coming and running and finding out that person didn't make it and thinking that this is my life now you know and then the next day going on putting my uniform on and acting like this upstanding citizen as a firefighter it was such a it was such a collision of two worlds that i just couldn't make work um 
And I, I'd, I just, I'd had enough. I was really, I was at my, I was at the end of my rope. I was so fucking exhausted, man, that I, I just didn't know. I didn't know how to change, but I knew I couldn't live that way any longer. So, um, mm -hmm. January 2nd, 2011, I woke up and I had been trying to get fucked up for three days. And I always say this, um, I, I, I refer to the, those three days as the three days when my medicine stopped working. I was mm. using, I was drinking excessive amounts. I was shooting so much dope. I was like, I just could not get fucked up. And it was like, what the fuck is going on? Like my escape has now left me. I am left. I, I am, I felt stone sober. Of course I wasn't, but my, I wasn't, I wasn't getting the effect, the desired effect of escaping my current reality. And I thought, what the fuck my, now my, and, and I would say that my medicine stopped working and, um, it's the best thing that ever happened to me that morning. I woke up and, and I, and I, and I, I thought to myself, I can't live this way any longer. And I started to write a list of ways that I could commit suicide. And I thought, this is going to be my fourth and final time. Um, I'm going to do it right. I live, I live and work, you know, very close to Niagara Falls. And I, you know, one of the, one of the options was jump over the falls. Uh, very few people make it. And if I make it, then somebody fucking like somebody's looking out for me. But for me, I was very concerned with um, people find people not being able to find me. I, I was mm. really impacted by walking into suicide deaths because I I had I'd seen my mom uh, attempt it when I was a child. I had attempted it three times, as I mentioned before. And and then when I would go to these calls as a firefighter into these suicide calls, I saw myself in these victims. I saw myself in the overdose victims. I saw myself in the drunk driving uh, accidents. I saw myself in every person that ha had this, these unfortunate demises, you know? And, um, and so I didn't want anyone to find me. So I started to write a list of like ways that I could just disappear from, you know, I could, I could off myself and nobody would, nobody would, I, I didn't think anyone would, would miss me. I just thought I could be erased and that would be the end of a fucking war for me, an internal war. And at some point, and I don't, I don't, I don't know. Some people might say this is like a spiritual experience, but what I, what I felt was like, as I was writing that list was a, a, a wave of emotions hit me. And all those times that I walked into the meetings and for, for, to appease other people, um, all those times where I said, I'm not like him. I'm not like her. That's not my story. I don't belong here. All the times I saw the little slogans on the on the wall, and I thought that's bullshit. That's not going to help anybody. All those times I shook my head, it, it all hit me. I remember the people smiling and laughing and joking and being welcoming and and loving and compassionate and caring. And um, I dropped the pen and I said, "Fuck this! There is another way." I've crumpled up that piece of paper. I got rid of it and I looked up the closest meeting that I could find to me. And um. You know, I'm I'm proud to say that today that was the last day that I I drank or took a drug, um, 2011 January 2nd. Um, when I walked into that meeting, man, it was the same meeting I'd walked in for years. You know, making it look good for other people, 
but I walked in there with a different desperation. It's like my, it was a different set of eyes, a different set of ears. My mouth was shut. I wasn't talking. I was listening, but I also had mm. an open, an open heart and an attitude of complete surrender. So for me, I had to get to that point where, you know, nothing, it was two choices. It was take myself out in whichever way I saw fit and, and whichever, and I was going to do it and I was not going to fail this time, or I have to go the other way. I was like at a crossroad. Like I have to either go, you know, take one fork or the other. And the other was go to those meetings, talk to those people, see what it's all about and actually fucking listen, relate to people. Don't compare myself to everybody. Like, don't be such a naive child. At that point, I was 32 years old. 10 years it took me. I probably I probably relapsed 50 times within that 10 years. And, um, you know, trying and, and making it look for, good for other people and whatever whatever I was doing. But I, I was never I was never in it for me. I was never in it because I wanted to change my life. I was I was always in it because it was going to get me out of trouble or it was going to please somebody else. And, you know, as we know, we can't get sober for other people. It doesn't work. Right. You know, it's not, um, it's a nice thought. There really is. And, and it shows that, you know, we do have the capacity for compassion, but we got to do it for ourselves. We have to be able to say, uh, this is for me because I need to live a better life. I need to change my life. I need to learn how to live again. And, uh, and, and so I went, I went in to recovery that day the first person that shook my hand, um, I didn't let go of his hand. And I, for the first time in, I don't know how many years, I just started crying, man. And I, and it was like the release that I had been holding in for years. I was 32 years old, a broken yeah. drug addict, drunk, um, <clears throat> at the end of his rope. Right. And, and I started crying and I just said, fuck man, you know, just a few hours ago, I was writing a list of ways to, to kill myself. And I, I chose to come here instead. Like I need, I need you to show me how to live. I, I can't manage this on my own. Like every way, every manipulation that I've made it to my life makes it worse. I can't run the show anymore. I need, I need people like you to show me like, how the fuck did you do it? This seems insurmountable. This seems like a mountain. I can't even begin to climb. Um, and you know, it was amazing. That person allowed me the space to cry. He didn't yeah. judge me. He said, you know what, man, we've all been there. I know exactly how you feel right now. Let it out. And um, that meeting was a, a sharing meeting. So everybody around the room is supposed to share for like, you know, two minutes or whatever. And um, these poor, like, I shouldn't say, these amazing recovering alcoholics and, and drug addicts allowed me the space to monopolize the whole fucking meeting. I spent one hour talking about me and me only and everybody around just let me talk because I was like it all that shit that I was holding from a child through teenage years of use and abuse of drugs and alcohol um through you know stuff I'd seen through work you know, all that stuff that I, you know, the, the guilt, the shame, the remorse that I had for everything in my life, it was just finally bubbling over. You know, it mm -hmm. had been bubbling, bubbling, bubbling. And all of a sudden it was like, 
I, I said one thing and I just would not stop. It, mm. I told my life story and I never felt so good in my life. It was like, it was like I, I had been carrying suitcases full of rocks. And every time I told a new thing about my, about my life to somebody else, one of those rocks was emptied. One of those rocks was emptied. And I right. just kept talking and they, you know, these people at the end of the meeting, they, they said, you know, I didn't allow any of, any of them to speak, which is like such a typical selfish alcohol, alcoholic addict thing to do. But I appreciated that they saw, they saw the desperation and the need for me to be able to do that. Yeah. You know, um, they gave me their phone numbers and they told me where the next meeting was. They said, keep coming back, get a sponsor, find a home group, be of service. And I didn't know what that meant. Be of service. Like, mm. uh, and, and they said, just, you know, go through the steps with somebody, be remain teachable, humble yourself and, and learn from other people who have walked your path, walked that same path before. And then go share it with another person. That's what's that's what being of service is, you know, or something as simple as setting up the chairs at a meeting, putting the coffee on, you know, taking a service position like um or just greeting people at the door. Any of that could be, you know, being of service, but not sure. being of yourself, yeah. right? I was so nothing in my life was uh for anybody else but me uh, until that point. So I am. Um, you know, I, I, I took the same mentality that I had towards, uh, drugs and alcohol as I did to, um, recovery. So I said, fuck it. I'm an addict and I am going to learn everything about recovery now. Like I am going sure. to become, I'm going to make this my life, my life's mission because the other option is I'm not here. I'm not on this planet anymore. Um, and I know that I don't have, I, I was convinced and I still am today that I don't have another drink or another drug in me. I don't have another high. I don't have another drunk in me. I can't do it. Like I know it, I end up in the same place every time and worse and worse and worse. You know, as I said, that the, the, the rock bottoms have trap doors and, um, you know, I, I, I allowed, I allowed other people to get to know me and I, you know, I'd go talk to my, you know, talk to counselors or, or talk to, you know, other people that I met in meetings and they'd say like, you know, what made you happy before you found alcohol and drugs? And I, you know, I, I used to like boxing. I used to like riding my skateboard. I used to like playing music and listening to music. And they said, go buy a skateboard, buy some boxing gloves, um, get a guitar and like download some music, go do that stuff. Be a kid again. Cause you, you didn't get a chance to be a kid. You know, mm. go, go be a kid again at 32 years old. Here I am this like fucking, you know, like <laughs> drug addict, alcoholic, uh, like fucking hanging on by the, by, by a thread, like 32 year old man going to the skate shop. You're like, I, I need a, I need a deck for like, I need to start skateboarding again. Cause I liked it when I was eight, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and, right, and right. but I did it, I did it. And, um, and, you know, I, I realized that I, I hurt myself too much as an old guy skateboarding. So um, I went to the boxing club and um, I, I realized, fuck, this is a this is a release that I needed. Um, and then I started I started practicing Muay Thai. And um, and to me that there was a spiritual component to Muay Thai, uh, like a, um, uh, a Buddhist component to it that really resonated with me and really sat 
well uh, with me because the the traditional um, religious stuff that I would hear in the meetings, I didn't, I was raised Catholic, but I was never a practicing Catholic. You know, I, I, I never, it wasn't, it wasn't for me. I, it's, it just, I, I couldn't, I needed something tangible. I needed something that was like principles in life that I mm. can, that I can, that I can see. I can't, I couldn't, you know, um, I couldn't make it right that there was a person, a fictional person that I had to put all my, all my faith into. Um, yeah. And, and, and I, and I have to say this, that um, no disrespect to anybody who is religious uh, in, in any way, because I know so many, so many of my friends um, have changed their lives and, and become better persons as a result of religion, uh, whichever way fits the individual i think is amazing and there's a place for any and all of it in in all our lives um but for me the buddhist stuff really um sat right for me and so as i said i was um i started practicing muay thai i started traveling over to thailand um and you know training with uh, training and and like getting the real experience from actual thai fighters and um it brought me a lot of things, you know, it brought me a spiritual component. It brought me, um, a release, a physical release. It tested my, my, um, tested my body and my brain, my mental fortitude, mm. uh, to be able to, to, to go through grueling training sessions and then start taking fights. Um, I learned how to lose. It took me a long time how to learn how to lose. Uh, and I still struggle with it, but, um, you know, I, I, I learned a lot of humility uh, fighting really humbled me and, and, and so did. And so, and it was very, I found that it worked hand in hand with what I was learning in recovery that I had to humble myself and, and realize that my life was so broken. I had to rebuild from the ground up. And those Mm. people, the people that I met in recovery, as well as the people I started meeting through Muay Thai, um, and the people I started to meet at the gym, um, they were lifting me up in a way uh, and they realized they saw it in me that I needed to be, I needed those seeds that I had mentioned earlier. I needed those seeds yeah. to be watered and nothing waters those seeds, but community. Um, you know, I can wish it and will it and want it all, you know, uh, all day long, but until I find community support, it doesn't, it doesn't come to fruition. Um, so I realized that, you know, I, I needed to build networks of healthy people around me that were eating right, thinking right, acting right, behaving uh, like adults. Because, you know, I was a 32-year-old man whose emotions were stunted, you know, at seven years old. So, you know, I I truly did feel like a a man. I was the the body of a man with the brain of a child still, uh, in the emotional capacity of a child. And sure. so that um, that took a long time to learn. I, it, it took a long time to learn how to deal with my emotions, how to sit with certain things. I started to make amends with some of the, the the people I had harmed in the past, and that really helped free up some space in my mind and my, uh, I guess, my soul. Really, you know, the stuff mm-hmm. I'd been holding on to for so long. Um, I learned how to forgive people, and 
I, I learned something that has really served me well in life that you don't have to forgive the actor, but you can forgive the action. Mm -hmm. Um, wait, I said that backwards. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> you don't have to forgive the action, but you can forgive the actor. So, mm. you know, somebody that had harmed me, I can forgive that person. I, I can't forgive. I can't, I don't have to forgive the action of being sexually abused as a child. That's unforgivable. But I can forgive that person because, and I don't, I will never forgive that person face to face, but in my heart and in my, mm. in, in my being, right. I can forgive that person because what I'm doing is freeing myself of that bondage. You know, uh, if I hold that in, if I, if I carry that and, and continue to distrust women or think that I'm going to be done wrong by who, who am I only like, I'm only hurting myself and any woman that crosses my path. Like, and, and, and who wants that? You know, I don't, I didn't want to, yeah. I learned that, you know, freeing myself and forgive, forgiving other people. And most importantly, forgiving myself was the only way that I could stay sober and become happy. And so, you know, I learned that, you know, through physical exercise, meditation, mindfulness, uh, community service, uh, and, and community involvement, whether that's in, in meetings, um, you know, as I said earlier, now I, I've, I've opened a, a men's, uh, addiction recovery center in St. Catharines with a friend of mine. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, <clears throat> I, I'm, I'm, I'm able to, and and happy to be of service to other people who have gone through what i what i went through and endured the the mental physical and emotional torture that every addict goes through um and you know through one addict talking to another we speak the same language we understand each other we don't have to talk details we just understand the emotions because our details may be different but our emotions are all the same uh, as people in addiction and, and especially as people, uh, in recovery from addiction. So, um, yeah, you know, I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a little over 12 years sober now and five years ago, um, you know, I was, I was kind of just like jumping from relationship to relationship and things in my life were really good. Um, you know, I had my health back. I had, I had, good people in my corner. You know, I was active. I was fighting. I was like, you know, eating right, sleeping great. I was, you know, everything was great, but I couldn't, I couldn't figure out this relationship piece. And <laughs> I was always ending up with the wrong, the wrong person. Uh, and, and again, you know, a, a lot of that was, it was me not allowing people to be the right person for me. Um, and, uh, I got to a point where I said, you know what, enough's enough. I was 40 years old and, um, I just, I was just out of a really, really tumultuous relationship. Um, you know, I, I, yeah, it was, uh, I, I was all my fears, all my fears about women that I, that I'd harbored were, uh, confirmed by this this mm -hmm. last this last uh, relationship that I was in before I met my wife, and I said, "Enough with relationships. I'm doing no strings attached. 
um, and, and I'm an older guy, like, I mean, as, as far as technology goes, um, and, and my friends were like, just download Tinder, download Tinder. You don't go to bars. You don't hang out. Like just, just do it. No strings attached. It's just what you want right now. And I'm like, okay, fuck, like kicking and screaming. I thought, I always said, if I can't meet a girl on my own, I, there's no way I'm using a fucking app. I'm fucking <laughs> way too old for this shit. So I go on there and I'm on there for about a week. And, um, this, you know, I match with this girl. Uh, she had like long blonde dreads, uh, tattoos all up her neck. Um, beautiful, stunning, stunning photos, like stunning girl. Um, and under, you know, on her profile, it says, first thing, she's sober. Second thing, uh, is Muay Thai. She fights and trains Muay Thai. And third thing, she's a tattoo artist. And, um, it just happened that I was, um, I was in Burlington and she was in Toronto flying out for a tattoo convention. That's why our locations matched, but she lives in Kingston or lived in Kingston at the time mm. I was in St. Catharines. So, you know, we were four hours apart from each other, but we happened to match that day. And, uh, she just got out of a, uh, out of a marriage that she was, you know, obviously unhappy in. Um, and, uh, so we were both in for it. No strings attached. This is just a, this is for fun. That's it. And, um, she's like hundred percent. I'm not ready for anything. She's like, I got a, I, I got a four-year-old boy. Um, and for me, I, I always said I am, cause I didn't see myself fit for fatherhood because I didn't think, I didn't think that I had learned the lessons from my father. I didn't think I was capable. And I didn't, you know, at that, I, I never found, I never, thought of myself as worthy to be a father. Um, and so I always said, I'll never have kids. And I certainly will not take care of anybody else's kids. And, you know, you, you always, you, you, you say, you say this enough and sure, you know, surely yeah. the person comes around who is the perfect fit for you, who's got a kid. And, and so I said, Oh, don't worry. Don't worry to my wife's name is Joe. I said, listen, and I was, and I also, you know, and I don't know if this is maybe weird, but I, I was like, I'm not into white girls and she is a white girl. And I said, listen, you have nothing to worry about. You're a white girl. I'm not into it. And you got a kid. It's a deal breaker. So this is no strings attached. She's like, done. Perfect. And finally, you know, we start talking and I'm an old guy. So I'm like, hey, listen, I'm, I don't want to text you. Can I call you? Because she was like, we were talking about sobriety or texting about it. We start talking on the phone and I'm like talking to her and I'm like, oh, fuck. Maybe this isn't going to be no strings attached. I like I like mm. talking to this girl, right? Like, oh my god! Don't let yourself don't let yourself get into it. And um, so we meet up for our just like no strings attached night. Grab a hotel in Toronto, and um, we met up, had an amazing night, and never stopped talking. We could not get enough of each other. Um, mm -hmm. so you know, for for months, I was driving back and forth. Kingston, St. Catherine, she was coming down, whatever, about three months after we were like, you know, seeing each other. She said, listen, I know you said it's a deal breaker with the kid, but like, I'd love for him to meet you. And uh, mm. I was like, <sighs> I was like, I had to chew on it for a couple, a couple minutes. And I was like, listen, she, like she was too perfect. And, and, and I said, if your kid's anything like you, I got to meet him, you know? And, um, so I met this kid and it was like, instantly, I just, 
like melted when I saw this little boy. He like this kid. I mean, he's changed my life. And so has my wife. This kid saw me. First thing he did is come up and hug my leg. And it's nice to meet you. And like there was no awkward stage. There was no you're not my dad stage. There was no mm. it was just like there's Chris. He's here now. And I like him. And we had a great time together. We the you know, his name is Ezzy. Him and I bonded real quick. Um, and, I, and I got closer and closer with Joe and, you know, we started spending, she started coming down for the weekends or the weeks, um, and bringing her son. And I realized like, we can't keep driving four hours back and forth. Like just come and stay here. You know, it's, I can't, and his father had moved to New Brunswick at the time, uh, started a new family with his, uh, with another girl. He's like, uh, you know, he's like a FaceTime dad. Um, really, really sad. I'm not, you know what I mean? I, 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 we don't ever speak ill of him, but, um, it's not what I understand in any way, shape or form, because this kid is like the, 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 like the light of my life. And I couldn't imagine being away from him for longer than a week. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, Mm -hmm. I I don't know how somebody does that, but, um, this kid, this kid, you know, he gave me an opportunity to to believe in myself as somebody who could raise a child. Um, sure. He gave me an opportunity to um, he gave me an opportunity to be a kid again, to experience childhood mm. through his eyes. You know, yeah. um, and he, you know, I um, I've I've had a, a chance to prove to myself that I am worthy of fatherhood and that I have um, a lot to offer and. You know, and I can be proud of how I'm raising my son. Um, and I don't call him my stepson. I call him my son because, you know, he's with us 100%. And um, I don't think of him as anything but my son. Sure. Uh, you know, I, I've I've had the, you know, the, the, like, pleasure of doing all the dad things with him. Like, teaching him how to ride a bike, watching the training wheels come off, you know, like, taking him fishing bringing him to Canada's wonderland or doing his first roller coaster, doing you know, all these things. And, and this kid, man, I don't know. Him and I have a relationship that is second to none. And, um, he just, it, he's changed my life and, you know, and, and, and so is my wife, you know, my wife is in recovery as well. She's, as I mentioned, she was sober. She's got, uh, over 11 years, in recovery so we've never known each other as addicts we've only known each other in recovery so um mm-hmm. i'm blessed to have uh you know a sober partner under the same roof that anytime i have a problem like you know i know i've got my sober network of people that i can call at any time uh or text but i know i i have somebody right here under my roof at all times that i can bring any situation to and i know that she doesn't judge me i don't fear that she's um gonna hurt me she's she's shown me what a real real uh excuse me what a real relationship is supposed to be she's shown mm. me unconditional love she's so, shown me support through my lowest times that i've had you know a, a couple years ago i i i had a, t- uh, a hard time at work i was starting to have panic attacks and uh, night terrors and these things. And, um, uh, yeah, I, actually I should talk about that because, um, this was 10 years into recovery 
and I thought I had sort of like fixed everything at work. You know, I, I had a promotion. I became a captain. I got respect back from a lot of the guys. I built myself back up from kind of the ground up again at work. And, um, but I hadn't dealt with a lot of those traumas and I started to have, um, and, and one of the things that happened to me, uh, is I, I went to the, I went to an overdose call and, um, I was the captain on this truck and I showed up and it was one of my old, like best friends who had been dead for a couple of days, overdosed. Um, he was a guy that, um, he was right next to me for, for years using. And, and he was a guy that also just two months before that I ran into on the street and I hardly recognized him. And he said, man, I saw what you, I saw what you've been doing and I need, I need you to help me change my life. Like I can't do this anymore. Fuck. And I saw the desperation and we exchanged numbers and, you know, I texted him, I called him, never heard back. And so you know, that was the next time I saw him, uh, overdosed and, and deceased, um, for a couple days. And that, I don't know, like there's, there's a, there's a smell and a scene when somebody's been there for a couple days that you don't forget. Um, and I, I was the one that had to talk to his parents and say, you know, like they were the one they, 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 came banging on his door because they hadn't heard from him for so long and um they found him and you know i had to talk to his parents and you know be that first that first voice of you know your son is no longer with us and and they they were convinced you can get him back you can get him back and it was a it was a really really difficult thing for me and um i didn't let on to the guys on my truck that i knew this guy because I wanted mm. to keep it professional. And I got back into the truck and um it really hurt me. I everyone was like laughing and joking like oh another junkie dead. Another you know like you know they were they were saying things like no it's a waste of life anyways. They're wasting our time coming to these calls like it's a fucking junkie. It's not worth even showing up for. And like I, I was like so enraged um you know, as I said, I saw myself in all these calls and all these victims of, of, of overdose and, um, and suicide. And, and I, I, I thought like, you guys are talking about me. That That's me. And that was my best friend. Right. And he desperately wanted help. And he, you know, had he picked up the phone, there would have been a chance that he wasn't using that day. You know, there, there might've been a chance that he'd be in a meeting. There might've been a chance that, he would still be here with us. And I didn't have to have that conversation with his parents. <clears throat> and um, ever since that call, I noticed, well, my wife noticed first. I didn't notice because it was happening internally. And I was, I don't know if I was like in denial that I could have PTSD or that <laughs> I could be affected because I thought, man, I've, I've come so far, 10 years in recovery. I've changed my life so much. I'm like, I felt indestructible. I was healthy. I was happy. I was, you know, I'd, sure. I was married yeah. now to my, to my wife. I had this beautiful child in my life. Um, I thought what could go wrong, you know? And I started having panic attacks. I started acting erratically. Um, my wife was like, Whoa, Whoa, Whoa. Like, who is this guy? Like what we haven't met, you know? Um, and, 
And she was pointing it out to me and I'm like, oh no, just a bad day. It's a bad day. I haven't slept. And she's like, yeah, you were screaming in your sleep. I haven't slept because you were screaming and kicking and thrashing around the whole time. And, Mm -hmm. you know, or I'd wake up out of breath, like heart pounding through my chest, like pacing around my room, unable, like telling my wife, you need to call an ambulance. You need to call an ambulance. I can't breathe. And I, I, I didn't know what was going on. Um, so I ignored the the signs and symptoms for, you know, a few months. And then, um, I had a call at work, um, and it was a basement fire and a basement fire is a really, really hot one because like in a, in a basement it's encased in cement. So there's not a lot of ventilation. Right. So we went to this basement fire and I was the first crew in, I brought my guys in and it was 3 a.m. And I just had one of these panic attacks again. I don't know what came over me, but it just like it, I, I, my body froze. My heart started pounding onto my chest. I wanted to rip all my gear off and we're in this basement, hot fire, t- like blacked out from smoke. And my guys are saying, let's go, let's go. What the fuck is wrong with you? Let's go. And I just, I couldn't move. I don't know how long that I was like frozen in this state for, but then when I came out of it, I started to like want to rip all my gear off and I could not, I could not exist in, in that moment. And, um, I I got on my radio and I said, I had an equipment malfunction. We need to back out of the fire. We backed out and my guys, you know, this is my crew. They were, they were pissed at me. They're like, what the fuck is going on? What happened? And I made up a story and I said, oh, my my breathing apparatus didn't work. Um, again, 10 years into recovery, 40, 42 years old at this time, still with that mindset of, I can't tell them that I couldn't handle it at work. I can't tell them that was a panic attack. And I can't tell them that, you know, it was my emotions that didn't allow me to work. So I made up a story and I went the very next day to, uh, a psychologist and they said like tell me more about what happened and what's gone on in your life and they said have you ever done a test for you know post traumatic stress disorder and i said no like i'm i'm good <laughs> you know as we as we do as like you know mm-hmm. i don't know it's like a, as men i guess we think we're good yeah. we don't want to talk about it we're like, and through all that self work i had done and all the you know the the changing that i'd done in the the awareness building and the you know all of this stuff that should have told me it's okay to say that you're not okay. I still had this, this wall, this wall up that I wasn't willing to take any bricks away from. And, um, I said, no, I'm good. That's like, not, that's not me. And they said, let humor us, do this test for us and answer it honestly. And I was like, okay. Cause deep down, I guess I really do want to know if I have this thing or what's sure. going on. Cause it just scared the fuck out of me. Like, I, I I put my life in danger uh, and I put my crew's life in danger and I wasn't able to to do my job um, as a public servant. And that, to me, that put me back in the place I was at when I was, you know, using and abusing drugs. I, I felt um, like I was, my life had sort of become unmanageable again. And mm. uh, so I did the test and they said, uh, you know, they it came back as like, you sit on the severe end of the scale for post-traumatic stress disorder. You need to go to treatment. And, um, and so my wife saw, saw me through, um, 
14 weeks in treatment out at BC. You know, she stayed at home with a kid, made it work. She's, you know, she's a very busy tattoo artist. She, you know, she made it work with him, getting him to school, getting off work early, sacrificing her time, her money, um, everything. She, she stayed by my side through that. She went through all the ups and downs of my, my, my emotional roller coaster that I was riding at that time. Um, you know, and I'm still in treatment for this. You know, I still, I still, I've been to two facilities for it. Um, and, and I, and I still see my, my psychologist weekly and, um, you know, I, I, I'm working through and have worked through a lot of it, but there's a ton left to go. And, um, and it's a lifetime, you know, it's a lifetime journey, but I'm finding again, this is sort of like in my life, uh, my 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 recovery from drugs and alcohol was like a, a a period of time that it was it was like a rebirth for me and now to go through this 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 post-traumatic stress thing is like another i'm almost reinvigorated in my recovery and and certainly more um committed to my daily practices my my daily um check-ins with my you know the people close to me uh daily check-ins with myself my daily practices of like meditation mindfulness um I, you know i i now have the opportunity to to you know go and speak on um you know i do public speaking tell my story uh for different um different businesses i do um go into the jails and prisons and talk to the guys in there about how to change and um you know, kind of, uh, you know, we talk about mindset, we talk about recovery, we talk about, um, you know, what happens when, when, you know, when you get back into, into, you know, life on the outside and, and, you mm -hmm. know, I've, I've been a, I've been a part of a lot of guys, um, um, reentry into society and, and their, their reintegration and um and and their you know their recovery and and a lot of them today like i still am in close contact with and they're you know some of them eight nine years in recovery and you know with married with great jobs now living like a a, a life of service and like committed to that life back in the gym doing like yeah. amazing things like all these things um i've i've really found that you know helping others and being of service is the 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 guarantee for me to keep my recovery um as strong as possible and um you know the more the more i get for myself in my recovery i i i i feel it's my duty to share that with other people because mm -hmm. i know that i know that i'm not the only one that's felt this way i know that you know uh, a massive percentage of the the world out there is uh affected by mental health drugs alcohol um any sort of addiction you know every person out there i don't care where you are in the world who you are you're affected by it in some way shape or form whether it's through you know a brother sister cousin friend spouse like somebody in your life is struggling with one of those things so we're all involved in this so I feel like the more I can talk about it, the more I can share about it, the more I can, um, the more I can give of myself to others, you know, the more we can change as a collective. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So with your story being, um, 
for one, thanks for, you know, working on yourself enough to be able to share that in such detail. Um, I know a lot of people that you talk to, uh, ego kind of gets in the way of them either admitting, um, you know, their faults and who they were, and they'll still try to sugarcoat their story because it, you know, they, they don't want to be perceived in a certain Mm -hmm. way, not realizing that it's like, dude, don't worry. Like authenticity is who's going to bring, you know, the people who don't like your authentic self are people who have the issues that you're speaking about, right? Like let, let them fucking go. Who gives a shit, man? Like you're going to build whatever you want to build being you. And for Mm -hmm. as long as you try to create a character is, you're just, you're just prolonging the suffering, man. Like playing a character is just, it's not getting anybody anywhere, but I think that this is a, a perfect time to speak about mental health. And we may have a, 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 a drastically different perspective on this, um, or it may be similar, who knows. Now, we see what is being called a mental health crisis right now. Mm-hmm. um worldwide and after the last three years of this whole fucking debacle um you know a lot of people are suffering in in ways they never thought possible mm-hmm. um but even pre that there was almost like this mental conditioning whether it be through you know music or the media or social media or hollywood where they almost started to glorify um you know anxiety depression popping xanax like they were making these soundcloud rappers really famous and what they did was fucked up a lot of kids and almost made it cool yeah to be you know you know depressed or anxious and and now we're seeing that bleed into these kids who are now say three four years older and it's 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 wild to me dude I, i i actually watched this video that blew me away the other day um and and they were talking about therapy And it was, you know, four young men, four young women, probably 18 to 21 years old. And, uh, you know, they're kind of just like mingling how this new generation mingles, just fucking odd to me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Because it it seems so superficial. It's like, who's more virtuous? Like, get the fuck out of here. It's annoying. (laughs) Um, But then they got to the topic of therapy and the girls were asking the boys, like, oh, do you go to therapy? And the one boy said, well, you know, I think therapy is, 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 uh, it comes in different forms. And my therapy is to like go surfing or go out in nature. Like that's where I find my therapy Mm -hmm. and like fucking, Hey man, I do that too. Whether at the gun range, kickboxing, all that's like, that's where my therapy is the gym. Right. Um, and they were like insulted that this dude wasn't seeing a therapist. This is what I'm talking about. It's almost like your inability to be mentally strong that mental fortitude yes it's like now if you're not weak you're you're a pussy for not being weak like i don't understand what's happening right now right so yeah do do you have any sort of explanation for for what in the fuck we're seeing in society because i i sure as hell don't yeah uh so you're saying like people are saying that if if like that that form of therapy for that particular person wasn't the right kind of therapy because they weren't going to proper therapy is that what is that well what, well they're basically just saying like oh you're not seeing a therapist so like you're you're weird oh right? like yeah that's, it's yeah. it's odd man i mean it's yeah i mean i'm i'm grateful that uh i'm grateful to know that seeing a therapist is is acceptable in sure. you know to 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 many people but i i definitely don't believe that therapy uh traditional therapy is the only way for every person 
Um, There's so many different ways for uh, us to to grow and to learn. And as you mentioned, like test our mental fortitude. And, you know, I know people uh, in the fight world who don't go to therapy, but they they and they suffer from PTSD. Uh, They're ex-military or firefighters, police, you know, that sort of thing. And they say that this is my form of therapy because I get to test, you know, my mental fortitude, uh, my physical limits. Um, I get to put myself in a situation where otherwise, you know, when my fight or flight uh, kicks in and I want to run, I stay there. I stay there Mm. and I learn, I learn to stay and, and move through, uh, move through this in a way that is um, safe and therapeutic for me. Um, so, and, and I know guys that are like jujitsu practitioners that say, you know, martial arts have saved my life, given me my life back. Absolutely. Um, there are so many different forms and traditional therapy, listen, like great, but there's a lot of other things that can complement it or take its place. And, you know, you and I talking is a therapy session. Neither of 100%. us are, neither of us are certified therapists, I, I believe. Right. Right. So, you know, this is a therapy session to me because mm-hmm. we're opening up about ourselves and you're giving me a platform and space to speak. Um, that's This is a form of therapy. So I don't believe that, um, <laughs> you know, for people to say that if you're not going to see a therapist regularly, there's something wrong with you or mm-hmm. like, what the fuck? Like that's that that's a small mind. Uh, that's a narrow view of of what and i think that anybody who who says or believes something like that needs to take a look at themselves and maybe you know broaden their uh, broaden their scope and 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 maybe yes do your therapy like and i i i i put a lot of stock into the therapy that i do but i put equal stock into the things i do on my own the things that i do in my community the things that i do with other people that are healthy people in my network um mm-hmm. and and simple things even you know just like sending a message back and forth to check in with a you know one of my homies like hey man just checking in you good today like that sort of thing that's yeah, man. that's therapeutic because we're opening the door to a conversation we're opening the door to dialogue that can be therapeutic and for us men especially um that's what we need the door to to be opened and to stay open 100% yeah. right and yeah. and i and i find this too in um you know in a lot of like combat sports um or or things that are physically challenging um that is that almost cultivates an atmosphere for um men to talk about other things in their life that's very difficult so mm-hmm. you know yeah i just had a hard sparring session and i got fucked up by that guy it reminds me of like when i had to go you know i i sure. it, yeah. I, I was so desperate for the and i could talk about I can talk about that shit with people who understand and, um, you know, and, and again, I'm, I'm always going on about this point for, for men, um, because we don't, we don't communicate with each other the same way that women do, you know, we don't, it's, it's very, very difficult for us to, uh, create an atmosphere and a dynamic between two men to be able Mm -hmm. to open up and share, you know, we want to test each other first. We want to see if our secrets are safe with you. We want to push the boundary. 100%. Yep. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and yep. we, we want to make you work for our trust rather than just saying, dude, let's, let's just open this up. This is a sharing of information. Your shit's safe with me. Mine's safe with you. You know? Yeah. Uh, 
I, I just think that 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 environment nowadays with how cutthroat everything is out there mm-hmm. um is 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 almost impossible to come across and, and i'm guilty of it man like i don't i'll be honest with you, i don't fucking like anybody yeah. i'm very much so to myself you leave me alone i leave you alone you touch my shit you lose your hand yeah. it's just very like i just want to be left alone but like i walk into my home and that stays out the door yeah because i know that like my wife's here my children are here my dogs are here you know there's my backyard is like a safe haven and mm-hmm. there's even like a part of that where look my neighbor is a nice guy yeah right? he's a really nice guy but i can't stand him <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, it's it's yeah. a very weird, like, look, every time I'm back here, I don't want to fucking talk to you, man. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm back here. This is this is my place. Yeah. Right. And a very nice guy. But at the end of the day, as a man who 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 has, you know, my my self accountability and I've done a lot of inner work through the years. Mm-hmm. For me, it's kind of like, look, you're like a five foot four, 300 pound bitch about your weight and your health, but drink six diet Cokes a day, like yeah. eat fast food. Like there's nothing to talk about, man. You know? So yeah. it's, that's what I mean though, is like, as much as men should have this, this, this place, I see why there's a dividing wall there because at the end of the day, man, look, if you're not in like good physical condition, mm-hmm. That's my like number one pet peeve. Look, me and you are just not in the same, you know, headspace. I'm sorry, but it just is what it is. And it yeah. sounds so fucking arrogant because it's like, what, you're better than them? Well, it's like, no, I just know that the one thing that I can control being my fucking health. Yeah. If you can't even control what's going in your mouth, bro, like we have nothing to talk about discipline wise. Right. Because I feel it's going to bleed into every other aspect of your life. Yeah. And that's where it kind of closes me off. Mm-hmm. But I always get along with the dudes that are always, you know, fucking Mohawk Matt looking. You know what I mean? Just yeah. normal guys. Right. Because sure. it's like, look, in my eyes, it's almost like they're not afraid to display through their their artwork on their bodies kind of who they are and put that out into the world. And for me, it's like admirable. Yeah, you know, it's like, dude, yeah. you you have your your neck tat, your face tat, like you you have your your head tat, and it's like, dude, it's there. There's something about that. You know, you go on to to Matt's Instagram, for instance, it's mm-hmm. very similar to yours, where it's you know a, a dude who's you know not not afraid to show the artwork, but is also at the gym and testing yep. their limits, but then also able to open up and be vulnerable. Like, I feel like that part of masculinity is gone. The balance of, you know, part of my day is spent being me. The other part spent being a warrior. And then the other part is spent being vulnerable with the wife and the child. And we can almost sniff each other out in crowds, right? Of like who you can, like if I was to go through 20 people in public in Niagara, and then, you know, you and I were in a restaurant and I like bump shoulders with you, be instant, like bump you in. Sorry. Hey bro. Like, yo, nice work. You know what I mean? And yeah, then where normally it'd be like, I bump into you and just be like, ah, fucking sorry. (laughs) (laughs) So it's just, men have a hard time curating those relationships. We have a very hard time being ourselves because of the, the the hierarchy in life like yeah. do you know what i mean like it's, it's almost hard to explain and i hate to make it sound like people are lesser because that's not what i'm trying to get at that's definitely not what i'm saying i respect everybody and their choices but you also need to respect that my gauge of you is largely dependent on how you take care of yourself mm-hmm. yeah and it, i get that's how i am 
Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I do get that, and uh, I think that goes to. Um, so for me, a lot of my friends uh, are involved with a lot of the same things as me. So you know, right. whether that's like going to the gym, fight stuff, um, right? You know, like there's always a physical component to my friendships, and mm -hmm. I, I think that I've met and uh, become friends with a lot of people just through the. Uh, common interest of taking care of ourselves and right. so i know that like and, and and i get what you're saying like um i it is tough to talk to somebody who um quite obviously doesn't take care of their their physical right. being because then you mm -hmm. think well, well like what if your if your physical health is is um is not important to you what's going on with your mental health and 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 it could be vice versa like you know what i mean that not not to say that every person that physically takes care of themselves is uh mentally stable as well but right. i think the, 100%. The, we have if we're physically taking care of ourselves at some point we need to look at the holistic view of you know sure. it, it, great it's great to look it's great to look good but what about feeling good and what 100%. about like liking or loving ourselves mm -hmm. um and I think that um, I don't know. I, I feel I feel fortunate that um, I have so many people in my life that uh, because I listen. I'm I understand what you're saying, and I'm kind of like you too. Like I like my space. I like being uh, with me and my people, which is my wife and my son. I love yeah. that atmosphere and that dynamic, and that is very special and sacred to me. But I also have a lot of really good people in my corner that sure. uh, I can reach out to that I know are like-minded that I, that, and, and this, this comes with time and experience. And, and also, you know, you spoke about this, putting ourselves out there to say, Hey man, I'm not a scared, to, you know, I'm not scared to talk about, you know, the bad shit. I'm not just here to show you the highlight reels. I'll mm. talk to you about the deep stuff, the dark stuff, the stuff that I thought I was going to take to the grave. And I can now joke yeah. about because I've, I've come, yeah. I've come to terms with it and I've dealt with it on a on an emotional level that i'm able to share that with you and talk to you about it and and most likely you'll be able to relate to it and share me you know share with me a story that's quite similar and i mm -hmm. found that with you know you you brought up matt like he's 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 a, a, a you know a wonderful friend of mine and he's introduced me to a lot of his friends that have become you know super close with me um you know through the podcast and then just staying in touch and checking in with each other and you know i've I've got friends that, um, you know, and it's, it's, it blows my mind. Like, you know, just doing the podcast stuff, I've connected with so many good people yep. via yep. social media and the camera, you know, the, the zoom meeting or, you know, and then, and then actually connected with them in real life and realized like, man, like these are my people. These are the people that like I actually, and we're, we're fortunate to live in this time where we can, you know, we can, we can be talking with yeah. people in Australia, the UK, Africa, anywhere in the world and we we can connect on uh you know we're actually face to face right now you know albeit through a screen sure. this is a real conversation this isn't just texting back and forth right mm -hmm. um and and you know it's my sense that if we you know and chances are we are going to bump into each other since we live so close to each other you know yeah. it's still this this will not feel any different in person than it does correct you know yep. through this and and i i've i feel very fortunate that um, I've had people placed in my path 
that I can have these conversations with, that I do sure. feel safe with, that I don't feel ashamed to say like, fuck man, I'm having a day. Help, can you help me? I need your help or I need, I just sure, need an man. ear. I need an ear to bend. Like sometimes mm-hmm. that's it. It's just like, I don't want to scream and yell at my wife today because I'm, I'm having a fucking shit day. Do you mind picking up the phone so I can scream and yell at you? And then you can do it to me sometime. Like those are the kind of friendships I have, you know? And it's like, mm-hmm. that's, that's what I need. That's what, um, but yeah, I don't think that's, I don't think that's common. Um, I think we're getting, we're getting closer to it. The more we're talking about it and the more we're, um, I think seeing people who might <laughs> look a certain way, talk, uh, you know, I, I, I kind of spoke about this with the guy at my work that he, he presented very tough, uh, this like hard biker looking dude. And he opens his mouth and it's just like compassion and gentle kindness. And I love that. I love that, um, that anomaly almost of like, you know, I, I was with a buddy a few weeks ago and we were down in New York and, you know, he's, he's, he's such a good friend of mine. And, um, you know, he's got a head full of tattoos covered up every same, same as me. And like, we were able to walk around and like talk to people and, and, and just be kind to people and be nice to people. And, and, you know, to, to change, maybe, maybe that 80 year old woman who, who we just held the door for maybe before, before and said, how's your day or like, how are you doing? Whatever it took an interest in. Maybe she was scared to see us at first. And now we've changed somebody's opinion. We've changed that, you know, that, um, that public perception of people that might may look a certain Mm. part. And, um, yeah, I, I love doing that. I love being, I just love being part of, part of, uh, part of change. And not only, um, what I, what drives me nuts is that people, uh, the people that are online talking about change and t- typing about change, but they're not acting, they're not behaving. They're not walking. Absolutely. You know, they're not walking their talk. And yeah. so e- go ahead. Sorry. E- even what we're talking about right now. Um, you know, how we're just having this conversation and, 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 you know, kind of how we're just kind of allowing each other for one to speak uninterrupted and, and for two, just how we're speaking about being, you know, the masculine in general, where you can be, you know, vulnerable with, with your crowd, but then, you know, navigating the world, you know, end of the day, your, your wife does want to see you play your role right like she wants to see you stoic and you know handle you know going to speak to people so she can be there with the kids like there's still that protector you know we have a role right for sure for sure but the problem that we're seeing right now with that is the characters that are in this i don't know if they call it like the red pill community or the manosphere all of this fucking stupid shit dude i'm so over being told that oh women are retarded and like fucking i'm I'm just we're getting further away from the goal because you know the last say five years we've been seeing like the huge pull to try to feminize men okay. and it's happening we see it everywhere but then we started getting on to the right track and then like everything else dude we always have to go all the way to the other side and then all the way to the other extreme like can we ever stop in the fucking middle like why do we just gloss over the middle like it doesn't exist like it's like the country road between two cities and nobody just wants to stop you know what i mean right five (laughs) minutes and just realize that there's something there 
you know? Yeah. And, yeah. and right now the problem that we see is, is just that, like the action, even that, that young men are being told to take right now, it started off good. Like pay attention to your money, stop doing any drugs and alcohol, get yourself in a good physical shape, have a game plan, work on your credit. It's like beautiful, yeah. wicked, like teach these get them to go in and, and start to learn how to be a man because all of that is just going to tell you you're taking care of yourself, your finances so that you can provide later on. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Sure. But then it goes into the like, I, I guess it's safe to say that, you know, this Andrew Tate character is who kind of opened the door for this monstrosity of what we're calling advice for young men. Yeah. So, if you had to kind of give the counter message to young men right now, what would that be for you? Mm. I think that um, the message would be that your, your adversities are your strengths. Mm. Um, You know, talking, you know, it's masculine and manly to be in touch with your emotions, to be able to talk about that stuff. Um, And, and you will be, you will be appreciated, loved, cared for, um, made feel worthy by, um, women and men, if you're showing your true self, you know, and, and that, and that, you know, and, and that can come with those masculine things that, that you want to do that come, that can come with your, you know, your big truck and your, you know, like like working Absolutely. out it can come with money it can come with um recognition for things you do it can come with being tough physically um but but being tough physically and in touch emotionally mm. is something that uh that's a force that can't be reckoned with you know 100%, what i mean percent man um, absolutely to me um you know i i i I, I worry about the I worry about the generation coming up and I and I've 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 really um tried to make it um uh, one of my life's missions to to model the behavior uh to not only my son but anybody that that I interact with that's younger than me that might be coming up in a world where there are yeah. these Andrew Tates screaming at them to you know um that 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 money is everything that you know it's about fame it's about money it's about um you know cars and and bullshit material bullshit um because that man isn't happy that's like you know and and for him to be the person or or a person like him to be a person that's giving the advice to young men out there um we're gonna have a really warped society and um you know and i agree there is a middle ground and and that middle ground is is somebody who is 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 physically fit uh emotionally stable um you know uh empathetic uh who knows how to treat uh their partner with respect and dignity and Absolutely. to realize that that is what makes a real man uh and that is masculine um 100%, to be able to man. show yeah and and yeah like part of that part of that masculinity it, it it has to be to be uh to be aware and able to show a softer side of you when it's mm-hmm. right when it's the right yeah. time so you know we all have these things in us 
we have to know when to turn these parts on and off and mm. when it's time to be compassionate and when it's time to be tough, when it's time for, uh, you know, like the, the, the physical strength to show. And then when it's time for your heart to open up. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I think w w what's happened is people have forgotten that regardless man or woman, and yes, I said two of them, just man and woman, um, we all have this physical being, a spiritual being, and all of that is kind of meshed together via your emotional self. And I think that men have gotten away from spirituality because so much of it is this like woo woo, you know, people are talking crazy. And, you know, typically when you hear something like manifest, they're like, well, that sounds fucking crazy. I'm like, no, no, you don't understand. Like the, your personal develop, your, your personal development and, and your ability, like the further you get into tapping into yourself and the more inner work you do, that quite literally opens up an exterior world that is ready for you at that level now. Yes. Right. Like how much work you've done is how much more the world will open up. It's kind of like one of those old games where like there's a whole map and you start off in the beginning and everything's dark until you explore it. Yeah. Right. The more yeah. of you you explore, the more the map opens up for you, the more opportunities, the more people come into your life. But the universe is only going to give that to you as you're at that stage of development. Mm -hmm. Right. So why do men, why have men ever felt like it wasn't OK to be emotional? You know, I heard a story uh, quite some time ago now where they, they were speaking of this, you know, the the ideal man, quote unquote. And it really resonated because it was this this dude that was like the sheriff of an old school town and okay. big giant Jack dude, you know, when the burglars would come in, he'd pick up the shotgun, go handle the scenario. And then he'd be able to, you know, connect with his community and lie on the ground and let the kids jump all over him. Right. 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 So it was this man that had the ability to, you know, put the boots on and say, all right, well, time to go handle, you know, business, but then sure. be able to come home and, and, and be the, you know, the rock for his community and the backbone of his household and the and still just treat everybody with that dignity and respect that everybody earns. And brother, I'm just tired of of people talking like we're like we're, we're so different, like, oh, men don't need women, women don't need men. Like y'all need to read the divine masculine, the divine feminine and figure the fuck out that both of those are within you. And that mm -hmm. if you guys stop fighting you know what yeah. I mean? It's stop yeah. bickering over your shortcomings. You, you, you're you bickering over the 5% you disagree on. Yeah. Dude, there's a 95% <laughs> that you agree on. Yeah. We keep bashing women. Like, listen, I can guarantee you that had you not met your wife, you would still have a giant part of you that is just not fulfilled. You have an yeah. empty void. Dude, your woman teaches you how to make a house a home. She mm -hmm. teaches you how to slay dragons all day. And when you close that door, right now you can just open up. I, I want to hear about your day and it's cool. You can do it if your day's been super fucking rough. You know, I got to punch a bag at home for a reason. But yeah. I know that after I go take all that shit out on that bag, I can come upstairs and just there, there's open arms waiting for me. Yeah. And that's invaluable. Oh, absolutely, man. It's invaluable. Yeah. And and men are losing sight of that. They're they're oh, we need to be by ourselves. I'm like, stop with this feminism on the other side. Like, dude, yeah. can we, we all just need to stop, dude? And I think that's where we're at. So, man, like I appreciate, you know, you having the ability to 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 kind of open up about masculinity because uh 
I, th I think I really think it's fucking difficult, man. I think a lot of men have a hard time articulating it because they're they do exactly what you said in your old workplace is mm -hmm. that or, or current workplace still. Yeah, the, I still the work there, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, you know, in, in a place where you're told, oh, like, you got to be hard, be a man and look at what it's done to you. Yeah. Like you're you're the absolute perfect description of what not talking about that shit does to you. Mm -hmm. And look what's happened. Yeah. It's uh and and the the thing is and I mentioned this uh before like the when we keep it in and we don't talk about it and we uh we do this like harden up tough it out be a man shit the result is an implosion on ourselves that is a fucking terrifying thing for yourself and the world around you to be a part of and I don't wish it on anybody I don't wish it on my worst enemy because um, it it is it is a battle that you know it, it, until until you're willing to open up and talk and really dissect and look at this stuff with another person, you will always lose. And um, absolutely. And and I, yeah. And this is why I this is why I believe that you know talking about it, just having conversations like this on a regular basis, mm -hmm. um, keeps me emotionally fit um keeps me uh spiritually spiritually connected um and 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 just you know it gives me an opportunity to um to to make connections where i otherwise wouldn't have an opportunity to mm. and um that that to me is invaluable and and then at the end of the day just like you said you know what is the most important thing in my life is the two people under my roof and um, and if I if I get all those boxes checked during my day while my wife's working and my kids at school and I'm making you know doing my workouts connecting with my guys that I that I know I can trust and that I can open up with um, keeping in check with my my daily routine my habits um, I know at the end of the day when I hit the couch and watch, you know, whatever show we're watching at the time. Um, and I can, I, I can sit and give, uh, I know my cup is full to give to my family. And I know that I can actually sit and be present with mm -hmm. a nine-year-old child and uh, my beautiful wife who, you know, I, I, again, like is also a person that um, balances me in such a way that nobody else has been able to. Um, so, you know, um, all those things, all those, all those things are working towards, you know, every day I, I put in that work so I can sit on the couch and, and, and just let it go and be there with these people that I love so much and that love me back unconditionally. Absolutely. Yeah. It's amazing. Well, man, it's been a, uh, Fuck, it's been a hell of a conversation, dude. And um bro, any anytime you have anything you want to say or or you know need a platform to to say it or I know yeah. your platform's doing great as well. I'd love for everybody to tune in. I actually found out about you from a uh Mohawk Matt, I think one of his podcasts that he did with you a while ago. Yeah. That's yeah. kind of where I came across the both of you. And honestly, oh, cool. I was just flipping through Instagram and stopped for a second. And uh when I look back down at my phone you guys are having a, an interview and I was like, Oh, you know what? Like I ran out of podcast for the day. Let me listen to this episode. Cool. Yeah. And I was like, fucking a, all right, cool. I mean, he has a serious problem with numbing cream and tattoos, but other than that, 
um (laughs) don't get me started (laughs) i know that's why i said it yeah it was like a semi semi shot like hey bro (laughs) yeah (laughs) i've I've seen you just hating on it but uh, uh, he says he earned it that's what all all the all the guys that get they use it say that i've earned it Yeah, yeah. Hey, I do the same thing, man. I do. I say the exact same shit. It's yeah. like, you know what? I've had, you know, both sleeves and my back done without it. And now it's like I use it every time. So do you? call me yeah. soft. It is what it is. I still <laughs> haven't used it. it. I still haven't. <laughs> used, and I've and I've spoken enough about it that fucking now I can't even use it if I want to use it. <laughs> like, yeah, good, good. Yeah. You, you earn that Serves shit. me right, right? <laughs> yeah, dude. Well, uh, hey, man, in, uh, in closing, I ask every single guest this question. Um, I just think it's super valuable. So I'm, I'm going to ask you as well. Mm-hmm. If you could give the world one message today to make it a better place, what would that be? Hmm. Yeah. Um, if you're struggling, know that you don't have to live that way any longer, that there is help out there and you're not alone. Mm. You're not alone in your struggle, that that there are places for you to go to meet people who are who are going through and who have gone through things exactly the way that you have and there's hope for all of us and um open up and talk to somebody about what you're what's going on with you um that's you know for me that's that's it that's the message i i I try to drive home all the time absolutely man yeah well like i say brother i appreciate having you on and i hope everybody tunes into everything that you're doing i think you're doing some truly inspiring and amazing work so Without thank you, man. Ado. Listen, the the honor is mine. I just i i want to i want to thank you for for asking me. Um, I'm I've been i've i've really enjoyed connecting with you and um just back and forth uh uh via social media and now face to face. And I you know I know that we will link up in person. Uh, I was so pleased to know that we live so close to each other and yeah, uh, we had no idea. So that was very cool. And um yeah, it, it's it's a really an honor. And I I really. Um, I know that I, I can, once I start talking, um, I, I get going on it. And so thank you for graciously allowing me to ramble <laughs> and, uh, of course, man, man it, it's, it's been an honor and a pleasure. And, um, I just, I, I, I wish you all the best in everything that you're doing too.